Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Uh, the financial guru, Warren Buffett, you might have heard of Warren Buffett. He said once, uh, only when the tide goes out can you tell whether or not people have been swimming naked. Jesus said the same thing too, you know, in the Bible, just in different sort of words. Uh, but he said, uh, the wise man or the wise person builds their house upon the rock when, when the rains come down. It's not, it's not washed away. The question for us when, when we face the inevit- inevitabilities of the hardships in life and the trials that we face is, the question for us all is, how do we know we're not swimming naked? That is, how do we... How do, we know, how do you know that you have the personal resources to survive the challenges and the hardships and the trials and the difficulty that life will throw at you? That's a question we've been asking in this series, Trusting the Unseen, as we look at the nature of faith. How is it that we can have a resource that when these circumstances come, they don't master us, but we master them? Well, this morning we're going to continue to unpack that, see how we grow a big faith, how that all works. And, and for me, I guess my own wrestle with all of that came from a very naive prayer. Here's my tip. Don't pray naive prayers. Some of you might have done that, but don't pray naive prayers. In my mid-20s, around 2003, I went to DY Headland and one of those naive, inspired, young adulty type moments... I went to the edge of the cliff and I cried out to God, Lord, I just believe that you are calling me to be a leader for you one day. Make me a leader for you. Make me a great leader for you, Father. Refine me by the fire. (laughs) Some people go, don't pray that prayer. (laughs) And you know, it was in the ensuing couple of years around about that season that uh, I'd lost uh, my mother to alcoholism. My dad had had a major accident. Um, Two close friends had attempted suicide and I'd spent way too much time in emergency uh, emergency rooms of hospitals and psychological wards. I changed jobs. I'd lost my job. Don't ever pray naive prayers. (laughs) And uh, look, it's probably only until recently that Krista and I were talking through today's current leadership challenges. And she turned to me and said, Sam, you know what? If you had never have been through all of that sort of stuff, there's no way you'd be able to minister the way that you're ministering today. Yeah, I'm not naive anymore. I'm not naive. That's why I can preach on it this morning. So don't be naive. Here's how we grow our faith. Faith is grown through testing. Through my own experience, biblically, I don't know if that's your experience. I don't really see any other major way that God seems to grow our faith except through testing. Yeah, sure, you might have some spiritual experiences. You might have a few goosebump moments, but he grows your faith through testing, through life's challenges and hardships. And so this morning, we're going to see the inevitability of those tests, the nature of those tests, uh, why you need those tests personally, and then how to pass them. The inevitability of them, the nature of them, why you need them personally, and how you can pass the test. Look, if, if, if life's difficulties and hardships come at us, then what are they? 
I mean, you know what the attitude of people is. A test comes along their way and they think, oh, God must be punishing me, right? I've done something wrong. There must be sin in my life. I've done... God must be punishing me with this. And what I want to say to you firstly this morning is that all of life's hardships are actually examinations. It says here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 to 18, it says, by faith, when God, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, when God gave him an exam. And we always know in life there's two types of examinations, right? There's uh, the parental examination and then there's uh, the debilitating examination, the worldly examination. Uh, the worldly examination is the exam that you have that says pass or fail. You make the bar or you don't make the bar. You're accepted into our organisation or you're not accepted into our organisation. That's, that's the everyday examinations. Whereas a parental examination is an exam, a test that you put the child through that feels like punishment at the time. But really it's a test to nurture them, to fulfil them, to grow them. And so... There's always two types of tests, tests that show you and tests that grow you, right? The harsh tests, the debilitating tests, they just show you that you're not good enough and then that's the end of the test. But have you found, think back, think back on the best teacher that you've ever had in high school. What were they like? The best teacher I ever had was Mr. Marsden. And Mr. Marsden, he didn't feel like the best teacher at the time. Now I realise he was the best teacher. Because Mr. Marsden, for business studies, every time we would go into class, just about every second day, he'd have these little things called spot tests. And it didn't matter where it was, he, he would just spot test you. It would just go for five or ten minutes and you'd just drop all your books and he would spot test you. And so initially when we first started, it, it felt like a test that was just showing us all the things that we don't know about business studies. But as we continued to be under his care and his tutelage, we realised they were tests not just to show us, but to grow us. You know, it got, it got so weird, the relationship at the end of it. We actually used to proactively do tests for fun. Can you believe that? We would do practice business studies tests. We'd get amped, the whole class would, to, to start practicing essays in preparation for the HSC. Here's why. The best teachers don't just show you, the best teachers test you in order to grow you. Now, regardless of their intention, they hurt. They're horrible, aren't they? Life's tests are horrible. We're not getting away from that. But unless you go through testing, then there's no way to show you. Hardship, difficulties come. I had no idea that my anger was still an issue. Lose a relationship. I didn't realise I was still bitter about the opposite sex. The, the, the loss of income. I'm, I'm, I just didn't realise that I was really that uncertain uh, and that locked in to my bank account until this thing is hit. We've been there, right? They're tests that show you, but what we're going to see in the way that God tests us is that he doesn't want to just show us, but he wants to grow us. He wants to be the sort of people that grow from their tests. So that's the first thing you have to realize. God's testing, and there will be God's testing, it's clear. Deuteronomy 8.2 says that God sent the Israelites into the wilderness in order to test them. God tests his people, but they're not a debilitating tit-for-tat test. They're a parental test. They're a fatherly test. And so it can't be that he's punishing us through these life circumstances, but he's testing us. Now, the nature of these tests, what, what are these tests? How do you know if you're being tested? Sometimes it feels pretty obvious, but there's a nuance in this. It's not just, 
the hardship just doesn't equal testing. Testing something a lot more nuanced than that. Uh, tests, the nature of God's tests, they're only tests on the other side of the even though. They're only tests on the other side of the even though. Look at uh, verse 17 and 18 again. By, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So see this, it's only a God test when you move to the other side of the even though. What I mean by that is it's only ever a God test when his command seems to contradict his promise. Ever been there? That this makes no sense. God had said that Isaac was the way that his descendants would be like the sand and the stars around him. And here's God saying, offer him up as a sacrifice. Of course, the logic says Abraham's going, how, how the heck can this be a test? How can this work? It's only a test if his command seems to contradict his promise. I'll give you some promises from the Bible. Not a hair on your head will be hurt. God can do immeasurably more than you thought or imagined. They're the promises of God. But here's the question. What if you read that stuff and you're in a place this morning where you're saying, I don't give a rat's about that cliche junk. And ironically, when you're in the middle of the test, right, those sorts of things hurt you and sting you even more. Have you ever found that? And people can't, oh, you know, God can do immeasurably more than you can imagine. Sometimes you get into this place, let's be real, and you're hoping someone won't say that to you. Because of the way that you feel right now. Because his command seems to contradict his promise. And that's how you know that you're really being tested by God. Because God's testings only happen when you feel like that you are being led out of the pathway of his blessing. Off the beaten track on a different road. You know what it's like when you're driving in a car with someone that really doesn't quite know where they're going. And you've got your set route in life. Ever done that? You get your friend to drive the car because he can't and you've got your shortcut through the back of Artaman in order to get to work and then they go a different way. You know that anxiety that you feel? <laughs> Isn't it true that when God pulls us out of the pathway of the blessing, we have that same anxiety that we feel but just magnified on a life scale? Why do we feel like that? Because the first mistake we make as his children is that we figure we're the ones that are supposed to be the driver. We're the passengers. We go his way, not our way. And that's why it is only a test when you just sit and you get to the other side of the even though. What's, what's on the other side of your even though? What is your even though? Because here's what I find as a pastor is that a lot of people don't get tested by God because the minute they come up against even though, like a brick wall... They turn the other way <laughs> because they get to the even though and, and the reasoning goes like this. Oh, I believe that God is calling me to do this. I believe that God is going to bless me. I believe that he's got things planned for me. I believe that he's going to look after me. I believe that not a hair on the head will hurt. We run into the even though when the command contradicts the promise. And then we say to ourselves, the reasoning goes like this, right? Oh, it doesn't feel like God is at work here, so he mustn't be at work. And we turn the other way. And we deny ourselves the opportunity to be truly grown and tested by the great teacher. So 
you need to know you're even though so that you can hold still on the other side of it. You see, the testing of God only grows you when you stay and you happen to obey God, even though it feels wrong at the time. Stay and obey. Stay and obey. Stay and obey. Isometric training. Active wear, remember? Just don't, don't drop the ball. I've got about four phrases for this principle now. Today it's even though, it's biblical. But I guess you're probably asking this morning, well, how do I know it's not a punishment? More, more importantly, why the heck does God have to test us this way? Because what you'll see biblically is if you read this, God always tests his people like this. It's all through Deuteronomy. It's all through the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament. He always, he always does this. It's, it's biblical that there seems to be dynamics by which the hardships... And the struggles and some of the things that you are feeling in life are the actual action of God's sovereign, all-powerful hand. That's hard for us to wrap our head around, but I want to show you why this is so significant, why you need this type of testing from him. These sorts of tests are needed in order to reveal your foundation. Think about, think about what it is that scares the daylights out of you when it comes to the, your circumstances. What, what, what circumstance, what thing in your life, if you lost it, would scare the daylights out of you? Is it your house? Is it your bank account? Is it your career? Is it a spouse? Is it your status? Is it your reputation? Now, can I put to you, as you're thinking through this now, what you're thinking is going to be different to a lot of other people in this room. <laughs> You notice that the person sitting next to you, the thing that scares the daylights out of them could be totally different from what you're thinking at the moment. Why is that? Because we are all have a different foundation. In fact, it's not the real foundation. I call them pseudo-foundations. They, well, they will never last. They're pseudo-foundations. It's what we do as humans. It's what we do before we've had a relationship with God. It's the pseudo-foundation where we build our lives upon something that we think will give us a sense of comfort or satisfaction or purpose or fulfilment. Job, career, money, car, house, whatever it may be. Now, God, such is the dynamic that God brings in this hardship in order to, to strip these things from you. Remember in James chapter 1, so where it says, Consider it pure joy when you face, there it is again, inevitability, trials of many kind, because you know that uh, it is helping to mature your faith so that you may not be lacking in anything. You know, the word, whenever the Bible talks about t- testing, more often than not, that word for testing is, is associated with smelting. That process where you put a precious metal with all the impurities into a hot furnace in a fire, and what does it do? It burns off all the impurities, all the things that don't last. Pseudo-foundations. The only way that you get gold to be gold is you smelt it. You put it in the fire and you make it pure. And so that's what God was doing here with Abraham, ironically. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 18, where it says, Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And then just before that, it says, By faith, Abraham offers up Isaac. He who had embraced the promises of God was about to, and here's the key line, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Now, unless you understand the history of Abraham here, you have to realize that that statement is a furphy. Because Abraham had two sons, didn't he, class? 
He had Isaac and Ishmael. So what's the, with the Bible wrong here? The writer of Hebrews didn't get the memo? <laughs> I couldn't have because they're basing the whole thing on, the, on Genesis. Why, why does it say his one and only son? It's because in Abraham's eyes, Isaac had become his only son. If you know the story a little bit further, is that Ishmael was the son of Abraham's own flesh, Abraham's own will. Ishmael was the son that Abraham, even though his wife was 90 years old and couldn't give birth to a child, decides instead of hanging through the even though, he goes off and has a son with his maidservant because God said that he would promise him a child. Right? He was the son of the flesh, whereas Isaac was the son of the promise. And so suddenly Abraham, when he realized that he has Isaac, suddenly in Abraham's eyes, he remembers all of the promises of God that are out there. Your descendants will be like the sand, like the stars. And Abraham moves to a point where he says, I can only have that blessing if I have Isaac. And as a result, Isaac had become his little only. What I mean by that is he'd become his foundation. Isn't that our great struggle that I find with a lot of Christians? That we don't doubt God's ends in our life. We don't doubt that he is good and he's faithful and he will look after us. The thing we doubt is his means. And in doubting his means, have you ever found that when an Isaac comes into your life, when a blessing comes into your life, you say, Lord, I'm going to be faithful for you. I'm I'm going to run a business so that I can go and bless the kingdom and do all these amazing things for you. And then God blesses your business. And then guess what happens? Over time, you latch on to that. And suddenly the means to the blessing becomes the blessing. And we're trapped. Abraham was trapped. He was a slave to his love for Isaac, not just for Isaac, but because he saw Isaac as the only means to get him through the even though. (laughs) We do it all the time. It's because sin is like a judo expert. You know, judo, it's different from all other martial arts. Like the bigger the enemy that comes at you, the, the bigger the weight, the more the force. A judo expert uses that force to then take the enemy down. You know that when judo, right? And sin is a great judo expert. It takes all of the good things and all of the beautiful things and all of the blessings of God. And if you are not careful, it will twist it and make those good things ultimate things. So the point that God was saying to Abraham through this test, he's saying, Sonny Jim... I have promised you all of these things. But the problem is when this blessing has come into your life, this kid has become your God, not me. And we, we could have a whole other sermon on it, but isn't that exactly what, what the book of Job is all about? Satan comes in. Satan's always half right, by the way. Satan comes in. He says, I want to I test Job because I reckon Job's got you over a barrel, God. I reckon Job loves you, not just for you and who you are, but because of what you bring him. And so let me go test him. Let me work this out. And that way we can see whether Job really loves you for you or whether he loves you for the things you bring. Satan's always half right. (laughs) And so this type of test is the type of test and why you need this test, that sometimes God strips these things from your life to ask you the question, am I really your foundation? Really, 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 really your foundation. You, you can never know apart from suffering and hardship, by the way, because the judo master is too clever, too tricky. <laughs> the good things, they charm us. We're charmed. 
And only until this hardship comes into our life can we understand whether he really is. Hey, my question for you is, what's become your little only? This is where you start to identify this. What's become your Isaac? What could be your little only? What could be the thing that God has brought into your life that's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing? Now look, some of you this morning, you're saying, hey look, I'm hurting here. I get it. Yep. I get that God's testing me and I get that it's not punishment and I know that I've got to hang through the even even though, but you know what, Sam? I'm at a point where I really just don't I don't give a stuff. I had I'm at my wits' end. I don't want to talk about foundations. I don't even feel like thinking about foundations. And how the heck am I supposed to pass those sorts of tests? We see it here in Abraham. How, how he passed the test. He comes up there, he's ready to go up, up, making the decision as to whether he takes his little only up the mountain. And he makes the decision, he says, it's through your offspring that Isaac will be reckoned. And it says here, verse 19, and Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. It says, Abraham reasoned. He thought it out, which is, by the way, goes back to last week. We were saying that, that faith actually starts not with emotion but with thinking. When he was in that crunch time, in that moment, Abraham thought, he reasoned, he stood back from the bigger picture of all of this. And so it shows us that Christian obedience is based in thinking. And here's the key what he did to his, in his thinking. Here's the key to it all. Abraham didn't, he didn't reason, oh, God would do this for me. He reasoned that he could. He, he sat there and he thought, if he's the God of the universe, if he's the one who has the solar system wrapped around his little pinky, if he's the one that's promised this, if he's the one that has brought me into being, if he's one that, the one that has been faithful through all of this, he can raise people from the dead. <laughs> he didn't reason that he would, he reasoned that he could. He thought about who God was. A Tony Monero in the, oh, it should have been an Oscar winning film, um, Staying Alive, back in 1983. <laughs> Um, Tony Monero is, is, in, uh, is, is, is vying for a lead in a dance on Broadway and he gets an opportunity for the first time to come out of the chorus and to dance the lead because the lead guy had stuffed it up and Monero makes a mistake straight off the bat and he runs out the door in classic emotional dancer fashion and he sits in the hallway and he's there sulking and the director of the dance comes out and Monero's about to walk away and, and the director says, Monero, don't you walk away from this. And the Monaro snaps, snaps back at him. Look at me, I stuffed it all up. And the director just stares him down, shouts him in the face. He says, what do you ever do? Classic New York accent. What do you ever do? What do you ever do that ever mean anything? This is your one chance. What do you ever do? Um, uh, that's what was said to Job, right? What, did you make the dawn? Did, did you? The solar system? You, you holding that thing up? God, God spoke, spoke to Job the, the, way, the same way that the director spoke to Manara. What would you ever do? If we're real with ourselves and we consider the, the majesty and the wonder and glory of God, we go, what would we ever do? And we think upon that and we reason not that he would do this for us, but he could. He could. But it's still, yeah, so you're going, Sam, it hasn't answered my question. I don't feel like it. I don't want to. 
Nothing in this makes sense. I can't see the light at the tunnel. I can't see a solution to this. I don't know if I've got the strength to get through the even, even though. And, and more than that, how, how do I even know that God really understands the situation that I'm going through at the moment? And the answer to that is, the answer to the question is to why Abraham never had to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice in the first place. See, if you go back to Genesis 22 and you read through the story, you see that Abraham comes in, he reasons, he thinks it all through. He says, okay, he gets the donkey, he gets the fire, he gets little Isaac, puts the wood on his back for the sticks, and they start trudging up the mountain. Then in that, that terrible moment, his little boy looks at him with the stuff over his shoulders. He looks up at him and he says, Daddy, I, I, can, I can see the fire. I can, I can see the wood. Where's the, where's the sacrifice? Abraham, like any father, is probably absolutely out of his skin. And he gets up to the top of the mountain and he says, Son, um, God will show us. They get there and at the last minute a, a lamb runs out of the bushes and it's, it's all okay. And he has the knife ready and God says, Stop! And out comes the lamb. Now, this is one of, one of the most beautiful echoes of the Old Testament to the New Testament. I don't want you to miss this. Why is it that Isaac never had to, Abraham never had to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice? You've got to think about where this has happened. He walks up the mountain. Which mountain? Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? Um, you'd know it. You'd know Mount Moriah really, really well. You know it today. It's in a city called Jerusalem, and it's really easy to pick because it has a massive gold dome on the top of it. It's now called the Dome of the Rock, and the place where, uh, where Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him. Why didn't he have to sacrifice him? Because literally 300 metres by line of sight, another father would send his son up the mountain. Another father would place the wood upon his shoulders. And another son would walk up the the cobblestone streets of the Jerusalem thinking, I, I see the wood, I see the device. Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And yet that father, and yet only in that moment as he went up and, and as, as, the, as the guards are about to hammer the nails down into his hand, for the, for at least for this time, there was no God there and no voice that, that yelled out, Stop! It's okay. I've got another one. Because he was it. And so God says to Abraham, you, you don't have to sacrifice your son because one day I will sacrifice mine for you, for them. So friend, what that means is, is that when we see at the cross and at the Mount, not Mount Moriah, but Mount Calvary, if we want to call it that just a couple of hundred meters away, if we see that God is willing to go to those lengths for you, here's the first thing we see. We see first and foremost, God understands pain and hardship and suffering. It means that God in Jesus Christ understands what it feels like if you think that there is no way out of this. If you think that the only way that this problem is going to get solved is if there's a resurrection somewhere. That, he, that, that God in Jesus Christ understands how nonsensical it means to obey even though you can't see a way through it. And so what that means is this stuff can't be punishment for you. This is paedia. This is fatherly, loving, 
discipline of a father who doesn't want to just show you but grow you into the person that you are destined to be. He is calling you to be a person of greatness, of big faith. And he's saying, child, the only way that I can do this, if this just hurts for a little while now. A Victorian axeman goes out to the large trees of Tasmania and a little magpie nested up the top. She's just had some nice little chicklings. So he goes out there because he surveyed it. The government said that that whole strip of land is to be chopped down. He goes out there and he sees the little magpie and he goes, oh my goodness, the magpie and the little babies. So he starts throwing his axe up at the branches in order to knock them out of the tree. He finally does it because he's an axeman. He gets straight on, hits the branch, and he knocks the nest out of the tree. The babies are okay, but she's got to pick the nest back up again and they've got to crawl back up to another one. He goes to the next tree. She's, she's not getting this, so he throws up the axe and, and, uh, and hits the tree again. And she's looking down at him going, oh my goodness, this guy's ruining my life. He's ruining my nest. This is pain. What about the kids? This hurts. It, 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 I just wish that he would go away. This is terrible. Go away, Axman. He continues to throw it. goes to the next one, throws the axe against the branch. He's doing it again. She's at a wit's end. She's, she just can't understand why all this is going on until she makes one final move and she decides to place a nest into a rock. In life, all of the trees are coming down. Trials and the hardship in your life. Well, some people say maybe is it, maybe is it the consequences of my silly actions? Maybe. Maybe it's maybe is it the injustices of a world that's evil and unfair? Maybe. Or maybe just maybe. It's the sovereign hand of the axeman, ensuring that you've got your foundations right. Let's pray. Father, we're either in the middle of this, we've either just been through this, or this will hit us. So Father, for wherever anyone in this place sits this morning, I pray that you would speak to them now by your Holy Spirit. That their hearts and their minds be lifted up to the loving and the nurturing Father that you are. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, please, if we could just have a glimpse of your perspective in life. Give that to us. And at the least, Father, if you're not going to give us a glimpse, will you give us the strength and the power by your Holy Spirit to hold tight to you even though? As a community of faith too, Father, we don't want to be a people that's just all happy clappy. Nor do we want to be a people that's always downcast. Will, will you help us to be a church that's both? Will you help us to be the sort of place that we can walk in here on any given Sunday with eyes open to know that any point in time that some people can be on the other side of a great test and rejoicing in the revelation that you've brought them at the, at the other end of the spectrum that some may be in the midst of that? Father, will you help us be a a nuanced place in this church. Most of all, uh, Father, help us 
have our eyes lifted up to who you are and what you're doing in our lives this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.